She's Tori. And he's Nick. And we're ready, ready to, to believe, believe you. you. I mean, not really, but you know, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! Oh. Ghostbusters was released on June 8th, 1984. And for reference, that was just over two years after Tori was born and just under 14 years after I was born. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did not see this movie in theaters for obvious reasons because oh. I was a toddler. <laughs> and you call yourself a fan. Okay. <laughs> I am a fan. I just I was too young. They wouldn't sell me a ticket. It was directed by Ivan Reitman, and it was written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray as Peter Venkman. His previous roles included being a cast member on Saturday Night Live, Carl Splacker in Caddyshack, and after Ghostbusters, he went on to play the titular character in What About Bob? Baby Steps, Frank Cross in Scrooged, Phil in Groundhog Day, Bob Harris in Lost in Translation, and Steve Zizou in The Life Aquatic, among a gazillion other movies, some of which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Dan Aykroyd plays Ray Stantz. He was also a cast member on Saturday Night Live and one of the Blues Brothers, which also started as a Saturday Night Live sketch. In 1991, he helped traumatize the childhoods of countless millennials as the dad in the movie My Girl. His character was not traumatizing, but that movie sure was. Yeah, and all the Gen Xers were like, yeah, killed off Macaulay Culkin. Oh, God, I still, it still just breaks my heart. I cried so hard every single time I watched that movie. Aykroyd considers himself a spiritualist, but I suspect Nick will have a lot of notes about that later. So we'll talk I mean, about that I might have at the end. A few pages, okay? Harold <laughs> yes. Ramis plays Egon Spengler. In addition to Egon, he played Russell Zitsky in Stripes. He co-wrote and directed Caddyshack and Groundhog Day and directed National Lampoon's Vacation, among others. He also co-wrote Stripes, which he was in, and starred Bill Murray as John Winger. That was also directed by Ivan Reitman and also included John Candy, John Larroquette, Judd Nelson, Dave Thomas, and Sean Young. And he also co-wrote Meatballs with Ivan Reitman, who directed it, and that was Bill Murray's first film though he did technically have an uncredited role in 1976's Next Stop, Greenwich Village. So Nice. Yeah, so definitely some connections. Yeah, for sure. Ernie Hudson plays Winston Zedmore. He played Warden Leo Glynn in HBO's Oz. He was also in The Crow, Congo, and Miss Congeniality. He recently played Jacob, who was Frankie's boyfriend and then friend on the show Grace and Frankie. And he's got a prominent role in the new Quantum Leap show. I'm not exactly sure who he plays, but it's one of the main characters. He's on all the promo oh. stills and stuff. So he's not the guy who jumps into bodies. I think he's one of the support people. Is he Owl, maybe? He might be. I know that um, Mason Alexander Park, who played Desire in The Sandman, is also in the new Quantum Leap show. And I followed them on Twitter and I kept seeing Ernie Hudson in the promo material. Cool. So I'm excited about that. I like Quantum Leap, so I'm going to have to check that out. Annie Potts played Janine Melnitz. She was in the movie Who's Harry Crumb, which Tori's brother Andrew loved when they were kids. She played Mary Jo Jackson Shively on Designing Women, which Tori's mom loved. 
And let's be honest, she was smoking hot in that show. I watched it too. She was also in Pretty in Pink and is the voice of Little Bo Peep in the Toy Story franchise. Like everyone we're going to mention, she obviously has way more credits. And maybe unlike everyone else we're going to mention, she also regularly comments on Mark Hamill's Instagram. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver plays Dana Barrett. Obviously, she was Ripley in Aliens. And Alien. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Aliens 3. Yeah. And I think another one, too. I think. I don't know. Yeah, I think she's in most of that franchise, to be honest. She played Gwen DeMarco in Galaxy Quest, which is one of my favorite movies. And Tony Shalhoub is also in that movie. <clears throat> and Tim Allen. Galaxy Quest. Yeah, Tim Allen's. But his character kind of sucks, too. So it kind of works. Oh. Isn't he like a captain? <laughs> yeah, he's the egotistical okay. Okay. jerk captain who has to learn to not be a jerk so they don't all get killed. Oh, okay. And as we talked about in our episode about the movie Paul, she plays the big guy in that film. Mm-hmm. Rick Moranis plays Lewis Tully. He played Dark Helmet in the movie Spaceballs, which is Mel Brooks's Star Wars spoof. He also played Wayne Selinsky, the dad, in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which is a movie I did see in theaters. And he was Barney Rubble in the 1994 live action The Flintstones movie. Hoser, you totally forgot that he was Bob McKenzie in The Great White North who his brother played Doug McKenzie, was played by Dave Thomas. Is that in Strange Brew? Yeah. That's, and then they had, they they had, I actually know it from the song, the little, do, 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 do. And then I believe it was a SCTV skit. And then the movie. And then, yeah. So, yep. They had an album. Yeah. Crazy Canadians. (laughs) And then, William Atherton plays Walter Peck, a.k.a. Walter Pecker, a.k.a. Dickless. He is an iconic 80s bad guy. Notably, he also played sleazy reporter Richard Dick Thornburg in both Die Hard and Die Hard 2. He was also in one episode of Monk, one episode of Lost, and he voiced Dr. Destiny slash John D. in Justice League. He also does a lot of Broadway, and he's apparently a kick-ass singer and does a lot of, like, musical theater and does songs for like charity and that kind of stuff so nice even though he tends to play dicks he's actually a really good guy apparently so yeah nice the running time of this movie is 105 minutes for the theatrical version yeah which is also the version that we watched as well so i don't know there's an extra cut of this that i'm aware of so there might be some point but as far as i know it's just the one it was the same on vhs i think yeah So during this summary, I am going to do my best not to quote every Peter Venkman line. God, for there was a time in my life, well, let's be honest, it still continues, where I could not have a conversation without putting a Bill Murray quote in a sentence. (laughs) So Yeah, it was really hard for me not to just write out all the dialogue (laughs) from this movie because it's just so iconic. And there's just just so many good lines. There were lines that I forgot actually came from this movie that I would quote. Yes. I assumed they were Bill Murray, but I was like, oh, it's actually from this movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's so, pretty great. Yeah. So obviously we are big fans of Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. So. so we open in the New York City library and there's slightly sinister music playing. And inside there's a librarian and she's pushing a book return cart. She goes downstairs to reshelve some books, and as she's walking through the shelves, she doesn't notice that there's these books floating on their own behind her. Mm-hmm. But as she passes the card catalog, 
the drawers fly open and the cards just like fly out everywhere. And so she kind of turns around, sees the cards just going all over the place and she screams and she runs through the stacks. As someone who worked in a library, I would scream and run too because I would not want to have to put all those cards back in. That would be such a nightmare to have to do. <laughs> yeah, no oh kidding. My God. So finally, she turns a corner and she encounters something that's giving off this bright light. And we kind of see this blast of wind hit her and she screams. And then we get the opening credits and the Ghostbusters logo. And a song. <laughs> yes. The yep. iconic Ghostbusters song. That's right. Then we're at Weaver Hall, Department of Psychology. And we see that the door reads Paranormal Studies. Dr. Egon Spangler, Dr. Ray Stance, Dr. Peter Venkman. And then on it in red paint, someone has graffitied Venkman burn in hell. Mm, might not be popular. Yeah, I don't think he is. And then we see Peter Venkman and he's doing his Zenner card experiment with the two co-eds. I did note, I had maybe forgotten this, but she says figure eight at one point, which is not part of the Zenner cards. And he tells her she got it right. So if you knew about Zenner card, you would know that was wrong. And then <laughs> we talked about how, like, at the very end, like, maybe the electric shocks are working because the guy gets it right. Technically, he did get it wrong because he says a couple of wavy lines and a couple is not three. So, mm. yeah, I'm going to give him that one. Okay. <laughs> he said wavy lines. I'm going to go with that's close enough. All right. So the dude gets frustrated, finally storms out, and Vankman is flirting with the young lady. When Ray comes in to get some equipment, he tells him that at the library, 10 people witnessed a free-floating, full-torso, vaporous apparition. Mm -hmm. Spangler went down there, and the PKA readings are off the scale. Yeah, Peter's not happy. Like, I'm in the middle of something, Ray. So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, ghost sighting is pretty important. So at the library, they meet Roger, who I think is the head librarian. And he hopes they can clean this up quickly and quietly. And the librarian explains her encounter. And Ray's really impressed by what she saw. And then Peter starts asking her questions about her family history of mental illness. Is she taking drugs or alcohol? Is she currently menstruating? And Roger's like, what does that have to do with anything? And Peter says, back off, man. I'm a scientist. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite lines mm -hmm. ever from a movie. So, so good. I forgot that it was in relation to whether or not she was menstruating, though. So that was <laughs> funny. <laughs> we should also specify, at this point, Peter is a non-believer. He actually thinks that Ray and Egon are wasting their time with all this ghost business. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. So they follow the PKE meter readings downstairs, and they find a stack of books that's, like, in the middle of the aisle, just stacked up really high, and kind of sarcastically one of them's like oh yeah go i think it's peter who's it like oh peter, ghost yeah. wouldn't do this yeah you know? <laughs> no human would stack books like this yeah <laughs> yeah obviously they would so it's not that exceptional and then they find a bunch of ectoplasm on the card catalog just like dripping off it like mm -hmm. slime yeah they make peter get it and he's not impressed so mm -mm. and then ray's all like listen you smell something, which I always love because it's like he's saying, listen, but then he smells something. And so it's like <laughs> the senses do not go together. Yeah. It reminds me of a joke in the 2016 Ghostbusters, which probably was inspired. Oh, yeah. So we'll, yeah, we'll get to that when we get to that. 
So Peter takes the sample and he gets it all over his fingers and he's like wiping ectoplasm on the books. Yeah. Which is terrible. He's trying to fling it. It hits him in the face and he's like, ah, and it's like on his shoes. And yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, it just gets all over the place. Very sticky stuff. And then a bookcase falls mm-hmm. and then they find the floating apparition. It's a woman in this old fashioned dress and she's floating there reading a book. So they decide one of them should try to speak to it. So they kind of both like Egon and Ray look at Peter and he's like, oh, okay. It's a lady, so, you know, San Peter, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. So Peter's like, hi, where are you from? And she shushes him. She's not interested. She's reading, dude. Leave her alone. So then Ray says he has a plan. So they kind of like gradually approach the ghost and then Ray yells, get her. <laughs> tries to reach out for her but she morphs into this ghoulish thing and they scream and they run out of the library mm-hmm. good music in that scene too when they're running out yeah it's very good yeah and then like later when they're talking peter's just like that was your plan get her yeah. get her he was like i was excited I didn't know what to do. so so great egon says that according to his readings and calculations he thinks they may be able to develop a way to catch and contain ghosts. Mm-hmm. This earns Egon a Nestle Crunch bar. Yeah, which Peter apparently keeps in his pockets for just this occasion, I guess, or something. Yeah. We probably <laughs> specify good, so, Egon. So, yeah, so Egon is totally the nerd. Like, at one point when they're trying to figure out what to do with the ghost, Egon, like, whips out his calculator, and Peter has to, like, stop it! Smacks it out of his hand. And then, you know, Ray is, like, the total, like, oh, almost, like, childlike believer. Peter is also, obviously, the sarcastic non-believer, so... Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit in love with Egon. I always have been. <laughs> I just, I don't know why. Just a special place in my heart. So they arrive back at their office and they find it being cleaned out. And they're basically told the board has voted to pull their grant and they're being evicted from the university immediately. Mm-hmm. Ray is distraught. He says that the private sector expects results. And he doesn't know where they're going to do their work now because they can't just keep working on grant money for the university, not getting anywhere. Peter thinks that it's fate and now they can go into business for themselves. And Ray's like, where are we going to get the money? Yeah. And Peter is drinking from a bottle of whiskey just like out in the open. And then he hands it to Ray and he's like, oh, I don't know. And then he takes a big old <laughs> swig of whiskey. And yeah. Yeah. Well, they just got fired and had me kicked out of their office. So yeah. It's just, I don't know. Little day drinking. I don't know. It's just one of those things that just burned into my head. Yeah. So So then we cut to them leaving a bank, and we learn that Ray has taken out a third or possibly three mortgages on the house his parents left him. Yeah. And not at a good rate. Like 19%. No. It's very bad. It's very bad. So then they look at this old fire station that's for sale, and Peter thinks it's overpriced for a fixer-upper. Egon thinks it should be condemned. Like, this place is just needs to be knocked down. But Ray loves it, especially the fire pole. <laughs> and it's his money, so they buy it. Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to get my stuff. We should sleep here tonight just to check it out. He's super excited. So Yeah, he definitely is kind of like a kid. It's great. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dana Barrett arrives home to her apartment with a bag full of groceries. She runs into her neighbor, Lewis, in the hall, who was clearly watching for her and, like, waiting for her, like, very obviously. And he invites her over, but she declines. And then he mentions he's having a party later in the week. And, you know, she's like, okay, I'll try to come. And then he's like, by the way, you shouldn't leave your TV on so loud. People complained. And she's kind of confused. She's like, huh, I don't remember leaving it on. 
So inside, her television is in fact on, and it's playing an ad for the Ghostbusters. We're ready to believe you. (laughs) (laughs) So she turns it off, and she goes into the kitchen to unpack her groceries. So she like pulls the eggs out of the bag and then starts putting stuff in the cabinet. And the eggs are sitting on the counter, and the eggs just start exploding out of their shells and landing on the counter. And then they start frying on the counter, which is not hot. So it's very weird. And she hears this growl coming from the fridge. So she opens the door. And instead of a normal fridge, there's this weird, like, gateway and a temple. And there's a dog-like creature. And someone says, Zool. And she screams and closes the door. Hmm. I need to clean that fridge more often, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Ray arrives at the firehouse in this old hearse, and he's like, I found the car. And then we learn that it needs a lot of work, of course. Mm-hmm. So you pay like 4800 for it, and it basically needs to be rebuilt. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ray's not great at negotiating. <laughs> and then we see Janine, the receptionist, and she's at her desk reading a People magazine, and she tells Peter there are no calls. And Peter's kind of like, Maybe you could at least pretend to work like we're paying you. And then what and I then, like about this scene, too, is that he's like, and stop staring at me. You got those bug eyes. Then he walks into, like, go to his office, and he's like, Janine, sorry about the bug eyes thing. <laughs> and I'll be in my office. So, like, he likes, I like that because sometimes I say things. I'm like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. He's also like, why don't you type something? And then we see Egon emerge from under her desk. He's actually setting up her computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, She flirts with him a little. Egon doesn't really seem to get it, which is part of the reason why I love him, honestly. But yeah, she clearly has a crush, which in the cartoon, which we'll talk about later, she that was like a constant plot line. Yeah. That Janine has a crush on Egon. Then Dana arrives at the firehouse and Peter like sees her and she's, you know, she's a pretty good looking lady and so he jumps up and runs over and is like oh hey i'll help you (laughs) so she tells them what happened and they suggest it could be a past life experience intruding on the present or erased memories or some kind of telepathic contact and dana's just like i don't believe in any of those things and peter's like me neither (laughs) (laughs) Ray decides he can go to the Hall of Records and check out the building, and Egon is going to look up the name Zool. Peter offers to go check out the apartment, I'm mm-hmm. sure with no ulterior motives whatsoever. No, like he totally doesn't like Freudian slip, but like, I'll go and check her out. I mean, I'll check her apartment out. So yeah. <laughs> I love because like Ray and Egon are just like totally nerding out like, oh, it could be this. It could be this. Just totally. And like, everyone's just like, what? And that's when Peter's like, I don't believe in any of that stuff either. They're nerds. We should get together. But then also Ray is just like drinking a Budweiser in the interview. And like Egon is like eating like Cheez-Its. And they're just like having this interview with a potential client. And Ray's just like <laughs> drinking a beer. And I just, it's amazing. I love it. Like the 80s were a different time, man. They're, it was a different time. Yeah. I pulled out some Cheez-Its when I was after one. <laughs> Cheez-Its. So I was like, oh my there's God, this Cheez-Its good. and there's Hi-Ho's and there's like Nutri-Grain bar. There's like just boxes of food everywhere. Like I'm guessing yeah. a lot of that was just like, you know. It's product boxes. placement. Yeah, Literally product all placement. of it. But it's all crazy because it. it's just like all over the place. And he's like, when she walks in, he's working on the, the what will be the Ecto one, and he's all smoking. He's all down inside the engine. He looks yeah, up, it's all hanging out of his mouth. It's just yeah. Ray smokes a lot in this movie. Yeah, so does Winston. So 
Yeah, and I think Peter does at one point too. I think but so. Egon yeah, never does. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Yeah, Egon never does. So, so then Peter ends up at Dana's apartment, and he looks around. And he's flirting with her, and she, you know he's kind of just doing his thing. And she's like, "You seem more like a game show host than a scientist." And then they finally get like they go into the kitchen. He's like, "Are these the eggs?" And she's like, "Yes." And he's like looking at the eggs and the lettuce that's laying on there. She's like, you should probably check the fridge. Like, that's why we came. And he's like, oh, yeah, good choice, good choice. So he opens it up, and he's like, he opens it slowly, and he's like, oh, my God. Look at all the junk food. And it's just all full of food. <laughs> and she's like, God damn it, this is all here. She actually says that, which is kind of funny. She's like, there was a building here, and there were creatures, and they were snarling. And it was all Zool. And he's like, well, I'm not getting any readings. And she's like, well, are you using that thing correctly? He's like, I don't know, but, like, there's no animals in there. And so he tries to flirt some more, and then she eventually kicks him out. He's talking to her, and he's talking about, like, hey, you know, I see I have this in my life, and now I see someone with the same thing. And she's like, yes, we both have the same problem, you. And she kicks them out. <laughs> and one of the other lines that I would use a lot, strangely, is when she tries to close door him and he sticks his head and he's like, no kiss. And then she pushes <laughs> out and closes the door. And then because he decides that because she's like realizes he's, you know, kidding on her. But basically he tells her that he's madly in love with her at one point. And she's like, oh, my God, get out. And then he's like, no, I know what I'll do. I'll solve your problem for you. And you'll be like, Peter Venkman is a top guy. And she's like, great, whatever. Just leave. So, yeah. And then Lewis comes out and sees Peter leaving, and then it's like, oh, oh, and we should. Lewis keeps locking himself out of his apartment every time we see him. He accidentally locks himself out of his apartment. Poor guy. Uh huh. So yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those where the doors auto lock, and he doesn't bring his keys with him. Yeah, because the first time when Dana goes in, then he goes through the door and he can't get in, and then this time he like sees Peter and he tries to go back in his apartment, but door won't open, and then it happens. At least once more, yeah. Time too. So yeah, every at least time he lives see. in a nice building with like a concierge. You can probably go open the door for him, but they're probably, they probably like, get every tired time they of see it. him coming. They're yeah. like, oh, "Lewis, yeah. how did you lock yourself out again?" Yeah. So then it's nighttime, and the guys are having a celebratory dinner of Chinese food that apparently has used the end of their petty cash. So mm, they're celebrating having a client, but they haven't got paid yet, so they ain't got no more money. And then Janine's leaving for the day, and the phone rings, and it's a call. And she's like, yes, of course they're serious. And so she takes the address down, and apparently the person asks if they'll be discreet. And she's like, oh, they'll be totally discreet. And then she's like, we got one. And she slams her hand down on this alarm button on the desk, and it's all woo-woo, sending off the alarm. And so they, like, jump up, and they slide down the pole, which terrifies Egon. Ray loves it, but Egon is terrified of sliding down the pole. And they put on their jumpsuits, and they hop in the Ecto-1 and throw on the siren and peel out. And they arrive at the Sedgwick Hotel. And they're anything but discreet. Peter's all like, hey, anybody see any ghosts? When they walk in, the sirens are blaring and all that kind of stuff. And hotel manager runs up and he's like, you know, well, we always had problems on the 12th floor, but it's been pretty quiet until about two weeks ago. So in the elevator to go up to the 12th floor, Ray realizes they've never really had a chance to test the equipment yet because they're basically wearing like nuclear accelerators on their back. So mm-hmm. Yeah, they switch him on, Maybe. and then Peter and Egon kind of stand back, <laughs> like standing back in the elevator would help if it exploded. But you know, hey, you can yeah, it. it wouldn't at all be yeah. this kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. So on the twelfth floor, Ray and Egon like trigger finger and like blast this maid's cart, and there's like toilet paper on fire. Pretty funny. And then so they decide to split up. Peter says that way they can do more damage, and then Ray is smoking again. 
and he sees a ghost, which we will in the future start calling Slimer, and he's eating food off the room service cart, and he tries to call Peter, but Peter's gone, so he tries to blast the ghost, but he misses, and then Slimer runs and basically sploots through a wall and leaves ectoplasm on it, and then he ends up at the other side of the other hallway that Peter is in, and then Peter radios Ray and is like, I see him. And Ray is like, well, don't, he won't hurt you. Don't worry about it. But as he says that, Slimer flies at him. And then he runs and he finds Peter and Peter's laying on the ground and he's covered in goo. And of course, uh -huh. then he says, he slimed me. So, and he's like, that's great. Actual physical contact. And he radios Egon. as like, hey, Egon, <laughs> guess what happened? And Egon's like, whatever, dude, I found him. He's in the ballroom. So Egon does not talk like that, but that's the gist yeah that's the gist of what yeah. he says so they sure. all come they all go down to the ballroom well egon's already down there so ray and peter go down there and they go into the ballroom and they find it floating around the ceiling so they try and shoot it and they miss and knock down a chandelier and then egon warns them not to cross the streams because that would be very bad and so peter's like um what do you mean by very bad and he kind of explains it and then ray says total protonic reversal so not great Melt your face no. off, basically. So mm -hmm. they shoot Slimer a couple times and miss him. At one point, Egon like just keeps firing, and Peter's like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Nice shooting, Tex!" You know, blast the bar. They're making a huge mess. They're destroying tables. Oh yeah, there's Completely. food exploding all over the place, and like the people who have reserved it because apparently there's a midnight buffet supposed to be happening in that ballroom. And so like this old lady is like, "Oh," and the guy's trying like, "Oh, I assure you, it'll be ready." And there's loud crashes and everything. <laughs> Just, yeah, you know it's not going to be good. So they finally get Slimer into the ghost trap. And then again, they basically destroy the ballroom. They come out and like, we got him. And then Peter's like, now let's talk costs. And Egon mm -hmm. like slides up four fingers. And it's like, so just the trapment's going to be 4,000. And then it's going to be extra thousand for like proton charging and, you know, ghost containment. So it's going to be $5,000 altogether. At first, the guy refuses to pay. So they're like, well, we can put him back. And then he agrees to pay, and Peter gives them a receipt. Boom. Captured their first ghost. It worked. Woo! Yay. And then we get this, like, montage thing where we're seeing scenes of the Ghostbusters, and then we see, like, covers of, like, magazines and newspapers, and they're all featuring the Ghostbusters, right? And they're running around catching ghosts, and we see, like, Larry King live, and we hear Casey Kasem talking about him, and they keep getting famous, and people are asking for autographs, but then also some people are speculating that they may be causing the things they're trying to stop, supposedly. And then Peter's all, like, giving an interview. He's like, no job is too big. No fee is too big. And then also we get a section where Ray is maybe having a dream. Um, I think he's actually having a dream. I don't think it's supposed to be real. but Yeah, I think yeah. it's supposed to be a dream. Adult content. So Yes. Yeah. yeah. Adult content with a ghost. Mm -hmm. Ray yeah. is a monster fucker. It's always, <laughs> it's always the quiet ones that you would least suspect. Although I guess that would be Egon. But really, you know, I wouldn't expect that of Ray either. So, yeah. you know, but again, always the quiet ones. Yep. And then Winston Zedmore arrives at the Ghostbusters firehouse. He's He basically saw an ad for a job. And his hiring interview includes whether he believes in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis. All things that we will or already have talked about on In Search Of. 
Yes. And Winston basically is like, I'll believe anything if there's a paycheck in it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care. I love Winston yep. so much. So basically, Ray and Peter kind of come in and they're tired and overworked and they just hire Winston on the spot. No questions asked. They don't even care. Like, we need another body. Let's mm-hmm. do it. So Dana comes out of rehearsal. This is a little bit later. She plays the cello in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I guess we should point that out. So as she's walking out of rehearsal, she sees Peter. He's kind of waiting around outside. And she asks if he has information on her case. He tells her the name Zul refers to a demigod who was worshipped around 6000 BC by the Hittites, the Mesopotamians, and the Sumerians. Mm -hmm. Zul was the minion of Gozer. And she's like, well, what's he doing in my icebox? Which is a very fair question. (laughs) Peter's like, oh, I'm working on it. How about we meet Thursday night? And he kind of makes it sound like he's asking her on a date. So she's kind of reluctant, but eventually agrees. Mm-hmm. And then we see Ray, and he's showing Winston how the ghost containment unit works. And Janine tells Peter there's a man from the EPA to see him, and that he needs to hire more help because she is also overworked. Yeah, this is a continuity error because when we see Ray and Peter, and they hire Winston, they're like working right, and Ray actually grabs Winston and is like, "Come on, you can go with me to to empty these traps. Like you're starting right now." Boom. And then we see Peter, he's out of uniform and in his normal clothes when he talks to Dana. Mm-hmm. And then when we come back to this scene where Ray is showing Winston how the ghost containment unit works, Peter is in his uniform and looks like he just came back from a job when Janine tells him there's an EPA guy there to see him. So Right. And and it's... Winston is not in gear. He's in the street clothes he was wearing when he got hired. He was like took his jacket mm-hmm. off. So a little bit of a continuity error there. Yeah, they probably inserted the Dana scene there, and it was probably originally meant to go somewhere else, and then they decided to. And then it's like it just fits. Yeah, it just fits here. So Yeah. yeah. So Peter meets Walter Peck of the EPA who asks a lot of questions about their operation and if their ghost storage facility is located on the premises. He wants to see the storage facility and assess any possible environmental threats. And Peter's a jerk to him, kind of, and tells him to just come back with a court order. I know. In fairness, I mean, Peter is playing with him because he's like, you didn't say the magic word. You need to say please. But he doesn't do the court order thing until Walter Peck actually brings up that yeah. he can do it or he can come with a court order. And then Peter's like, well, then you better bring a court order. Get the hell out of here. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And I should say that I realize Peter Venkman is not the best human being in the world, <laughs> but I absolutely support everything he does. He's one of my favorite, like all four of the Ghostbusters. I just love them so much. I don't, I will excuse all their faults. <laughs> we can talk about their faults because obviously Peter's a womanizer and a bit of a, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. He's, but. I still love him. Anyway. <laughs> and he missed his date with the with the girl at the university because he gets her like because Ray interrupts his date. But then he, he like she's going to come back at eight to have a meeting. But then they get kicked out of the university after that. So he doesn't even have an office. So he missed out completely on that. Oh, true. True. Yeah. I was thinking, well, at least, you know, he, but then I realized that's the same day. So, yeah, he wasn't able to meet her. because they, they lost their yeah. office. So. I mean, it's probably for the best because he would just. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably good for her. But yeah. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, Egon tells Winston and Ray that his data points to something big on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And they... Yes, the Twinkie and... analogy. He says <laughs> if a Twinkie symbolizes the normal paranormal activity in the city, based on his readings, it should be a Twinkie 35 feet long that weighs 600 pounds. Yeah, so there's a lot of paranormal activity going on. Yeah. And then lightning strikes Dana's building. And we see on the top there are these two stone gargoyles. And as the lightning strikes them, they crack. And we see like moving toes and red eyes coming out from the stone. Ooh. Also, where they are, it looks a lot like an altar. There's like a flat piece. And then it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's like there's like a temple there almost already. Yeah. Kind of strange. So Dana arrives home and she hears music coming from Lewis's apartment. She tries to sneak past his door because she knows he's <laughs> watching for her. But he opens it up and he's like, You should come in because he's having that party that he told mm-hmm. her about. But she tells him that she has a date tonight. And he's like, Well, bring him along. Yeah. So she says, hurt. Like, oh, tonight you forgot about my party. I know. But she agrees that maybe her and her date will stop by. So that seems to placate him. So she goes home and she's sitting in the living room and her mom calls. She starts talking to her mom. And as she's on the phone, a glowing light appears around the kitchen door. And then she sees something like moving through the wood of the door, Mm -hmm. like claws or hands. Like if the door was rubber and it was just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. pushing through the door. And she swears, and then these claws come up out of the chair that she's in and, like, grab her and hold her to the chair. Yeah, which one is of those claws freaky. is totally copping a feel. It's totally getting some boob. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And then the kitchen door opens, and the chair just zooms into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And the gargoyle yeah. is in there. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And then at Lewis's party... Another gargoyle is in the bedroom. He actually like opens the door to throw a coat in and we see it. He like throws the coat on it. And then it comes out of the bedroom and attacks. And so like people start screaming and Lewis runs out of the apartment, but the gargoyle crashes through the door and chases him down the hall. And so he runs outside and across the street and into this park. And there's this fancy restaurant with glass walls in the park. Yeah, I and think he's, he's like actually like in Central in. Park, is I think is where he's supposed to be. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. And he's banging on the glass windows of this restaurant and, you know, like, let me in, let me in. And the gargoyle attacks him. But we see that, like, people only see him banging on the window and then fall down. So no one else sees the gargoyle. Yeah. And Jean Kasem, Casey Kasem's wife, she plays, she's actually credited as tall woman at party. She's at the party. She's a tall blonde woman who's like dancing at the party that mm. Lewis is having. So that's that's okay. Casey Kasem's wife. Uh, she has several film and television credits. And she's actually done voice work on Darkwing Duck, Two Stupid Dogs, and Johnny Bravo, among some other nice. um, cartoons and stuff. So, yeah. So, Lewis gets attacked by a demon dog. And then Peter arrives for his date and he's like, cops are outside and they're like, oh, some crazy guy brought a cougar to a party. So, and there's like wreckage in the hall, but he goes over and he knocks on Dana's door and she answers, but she's wearing some sexy clothes and got like some sexy 80s makeup on and her hair's all kind of like flowing. And it's like, are you the key master? And he's like, no. And so she slams the door on him. (laughs) So he knocks again, and she's like, 
are you the key master? And he doesn't say he is exactly, but kind of like, he's like, oh, I have. And so she lets him in. And then they're talking and she tells him that she is Zul, the gatekeeper. And they must prepare for the coming of Gozer, the destructor. And she basically assumes that he is the key master. And so <laughs> she basically wants to have sex with him. So he actually refuses and is like, whoa, no, no, no. I need to talk to Dana. And she is like, there is no Dana, only Zul. And then he asks again, he's like, oh, Zuli. And then we get the classic, <laughs> there is no Dana, only Zul. And so he's like, what a lovely singing voice you must have. And then <laughs> she eventually like floats up above the bed and they actually do like a rotating thing. So it's like, look, she's not just, she's really floating. And so, yeah. And then she growls at him and scares him. So then we have a police officer who brings Lewis, who's now possessed. And he is says that he is Vince Clorto, the key master. And so they bring him to the Ghostbusters and Egon uses the PK meter. And it's like, whoop. And he's like, well, you can bring him in here. So they strap him into a machine and it's got like a colander with a bunch of stuff stuck on it on his head. And then there's a monitor that is supposed to be showing Lewis, but instead is apparently showing Vince Clorto, who is a demon dog. Because we see the demon dog gargoyle thing mm -hmm. in the monitor. So Lewis tells them of the coming of Gozer and all about that stuff. And then Janine like pulls Egon aside and says that she's very psychic and she is scared that Egon is going to die. And then Peter calls to tell them that Dana is possessed and he sedated her and that she says that she is the gatekeeper and looking for the key master. And Egon's like, well, I have someone here who says he's the key master. And Peter's like, oh, we should get them together. And Egon's like, no, I think that would be a very bad idea. So <laughs> that is the opposite of what they should do. Yeah. yeah. So he tells them <laughs> that he's sedated Dana and we see her like... <laughs> But she's like unconscious, but like breathing very heavy. And so, mm. so then in the Ecto 1, we see that Ray is looking over the plans for Dana's building while Winston is driving. And Winston points out like the huge increase in spirits and paranormal activity might be a sign of the coming apocalypse, like, you know, in Revelations <gasps> in the Bible. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. yeah. When we see Ray and Winston, it's night, but it's also like starting to become dawn. And then it's like morning, and we see Walter Peck from the EPA arrive with the police and a Con Ed employee and a cease and desist order to shut down the containment unit. And so they go in, and he orders Egon to shut off the unit, or he will, and Egon argues with him about the dangers. And then Peter arrives and tells him, like, you know, hey, don't shut this off. But then they do, and then the alarm blares, and everyone runs out of the firehouse, and it explodes, and all this energy shoots up through the roof. And all the spirits are going around. And then we see Dana awaken, boom, her eyes open. And then in the process, Lewis wanders off, right? Because he's possessed yeah, in by the chaos, because they're all like, yeah, because there's a stuff walking everyone's building. all like, oh my God. And then Ray and Winston arrive. And then they all like, oh my God, where's the key master? So they go to look for him. And then Peck stops them and demands they all be arrested. And then we get a montage of ghosts just flying all around New York City and causing havoc. Slimer's there, eats a bunch of hot dogs. And then we see Dana, and she's looking out the windows of her apartment. And then from the outside, her apartment just blows yeah, the out. the walls just, like, explode out. So her yep. penthouse is now just open to the air. Yep, the whole thing. Yep. Mm, not good. Nope. So in a jail cell, the Ghostbusters are looking over the plans to Dana's building, and they're, like, all super weird. 
and Ray says the architect was either a genius or a wacko. And then Peter's like, like, pretend I don't know anything about what you're talking about and explain it to me, please. And all the prisoners in there are listening and standing around the table. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, they're in the like the jail cell and there's nothing else to do, but it is funny because yeah. they have the plans and everyone's just kind of huddled around, like totally fascinated. <laughs> yeah. So he tells Peter that the building is basically a giant antenna that was built to pull in spiritual turbulence. And Egon explains that something is going to come through the building like it's a gate. The architect was Ivo Shandor. He started a cult of Gozer in 1920, and he conducted a lot of unnecessary like surgery because he was a doctor. And then after World War One ended, he thought that mankind was too evil to survive. And so his cult of Gozer worshippers conducted bizarre rituals on the top of the building meant to bring about the end of the world. Which probably explains why there's Ooh. that altar-looking thing where the gargoyles were, because that's probably where they yeah. their business. So I'm not sure you would just let someone build a building like that in New York. Zoning must have been different in the 1920s. I don't know. Probably. So, yeah. And if you're building a cinematic universe, Reginald Vell Johnson appears as an unnamed police officer to tell the yep. Ghostbusters that the mayor wants to see them. And is he playing Officer Al Powell from Die Hard? Or is he playing Officer Carl Winslow from Family Matters. Is he playing both? You decide. So, yes. It's Carl Winslow because that means that Urkel exists in the Ghostbusters universe. Well, actually, you could. There is a theory that Carl Winslow is like a dream of Al Powell or vice versa. The whole Die Hard stuff is a dream. Or that Carl mm-hmm. Winslow is like they had to go into like protective custody and that's like he had to change his name and his whole family had to go with him. So oh, yeah. people have thought about this stories. a lot. Yeah. 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 Jeff and I talked about it in our Die Hard episode because Jeff is really into that theory. So. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's what happens when you cast the same actor to play a very similar role. Yeah. If you always play movies. the same actor to play the same, like play a cop, you're going to think, hey, this guy might exist in different worlds, even if he has different names. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, we see that the key master and the gatekeeper finally connect. Ooh. I'll let you fill in the blanks as to what that means. <laughs> it's an 80s movie. It's fairly family friendly. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the Ghostbusters are brought before the mayor along with Walter Peck, who claims that they use nerve gas to make people think they're seeing ghosts and then profit from the cleanup. But they convince the mayor that something apocalyptic is about to happen. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Yeah. And basically, if they're wrong, he can send them to jail. But if they're right, he'll save the lives of millions of registered voters. Mm -hmm. Some highfalutin Catholic guy, like a cardinal or something, is like, oh, mm -hmm," because he came in, too. And he thinks that's a good idea. So. Yeah, there are a lot of people kind of arguing back and forth. I cut it down a little because the summary was getting very long. Like I said, I wanted to include literally every minute and I had to restrain myself. I mean, in an ideal world, we would have like mystery science theatered this. It would have been fantastic. So, <laughs> We'd have to keep pausing. We'd have to keep comments. pausing, though. Yeah, we would totally have to keep pausing. Would, this would be like a six hour podcast. Yes. Yeah, like a six hour movie podcast. Yeah. yeah. Then we see the National Guard is mobilizing in the streets, and the Ghostbusters are given a police and military escort to Dana's building. 
And they arrive to a cheering crowd who is gathered outside because obviously the building just like blew up in parts. Like some mm-hmm. of the apartments just smashed open. So there's clearly stuff going on there. Yeah. I particularly like there's some Orthodox rabbis that are like jumping up and down like teenage girls at a Beatles concert when the <laughs> Ghostbusters are there. And yeah. yeah. And there's also dark clouds gathering around the building. And then as they get out of the Ecto-1, the pavement cracks. And it creates this chasm in the street that seems to swallow the Ghostbusters. And everyone's like, Mm -hmm. but then the Ghostbusters climb out of it. Everyone starts to cheer. Yay. And that's when we actually get the scene that I just mentioned with the rabbis jumping up and down. So, yeah. So obviously, because it's an emergency, the elevators are not functional in this building. So they have to climb the stairs to the top of the building, or at least the Dana's floor is their plan. So they're climbing up the stairs. Dana and Lewis are up on the roof and inside the Ghostbusters get to Dana's apartment and it's ruined. Like we said, the walls have just busted out. So it's just open to the air. Mm-hmm. And then where the kitchen was, there's a set of previously concealed stone stairs. So probably that was like behind her fridge or something and got blown out. So they climb the stairs like you would. Mm-hmm. Ray is like, where are these stairs go? And Peter's like, up, they go up. <laughs> They go up, and so do we. Yeah, but the, well, he says so do we, and then he makes sure that everyone else goes up first. So you know, yes, yeah. On the roof, purple lightning strikes Lewis and Dana, who are standing in the positions of the gargoyles on those like flat platform things that they were positioned on before, and they turn into big black gargoyle creatures just as the Ghostbusters arrive. So they see them turn into the dog, so mm-hmm. they know exactly what's going on. Yeah, Peter's like Dana, and then she turned into a dog. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's now a glass doorway at the top of some stone steps between those two gargoyle things. Mm-hmm. It opens and Gozer appears. <gasps> so Ray steps forward and he tries to be assertive and he tells her that she needs to return where she came from or the nearest convenient parallel dimension. Mm-hmm. And she just looks at him and she's like, I guess, I, well, I don't know if she is the right pronoun, but they it's use fine. the word girl. So, yeah, I think Gozer can be anything that they want to be. So I guess it. Yeah. Well, they actually say that in the movie, too. So Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So she is presenting as a Gozer asks Ray if he's a god. He kind of hesitates and kind of looks behind him. And like, I think it's is it Peter or Egon who kind of like seems to nod a little like, you know, (laughs) but he, he turns back around and he's like, no. So Gozer shoots lightning at them, and they almost all fall off the edge of the building. And then Winston is like, Ray, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's Peter who gives them the audience. He's like, yeah, go ahead, say you're god. But yeah, he's Ray, like, yes, but, say you're but god. Then Ray but then Ray says Ray no. So, yeah, he does not. He does not say yes. Yeah, so now they're pissed. And so Vinkman is like, this chick is toast. Yeah. Because so- it is mentioned earlier that, like, Winston is like, I thought Gozer was a guy. And Egon's like, Gozer can be anything he wants to be because he's actually appearing like as a as a like a young woman in this case. So, yeah, it's but. almost it's very androgynous, though. Like there yeah. there is, you know, so. Yeah. Apparently they were going to have Paul Rubens play Gozer originally. Oh, but then they ended up getting this Serbian model to play Gozer. So, yeah, huh. that would have been a very different. Yeah. Movie. Anyway, they shoot Gozer with their proton packs and they think they've gotten her because like she disappears. Mm -hmm. So they're like, woo, okay, that wasn't so hard. Yeah. 
And as they're celebrating, parts of the building start to fall down. And then this voice comes booming down. And it tells them to choose. Choose the form of the Destructor. And so Peter tells them all to keep their minds blank. Because he figures out that if they don't pick anything, Gozer can't come and destroy everything. Yep. But then they hear that the choice has been made. And they're like, I didn't choose anything. Did you choose anything? And they're just like, no. And like, you know, Winston's like, my mind was blank. And Ray's like, uh. And they all all slowly turn and look at him. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I I was trying to think of the most harmless thing I could think of. Something that could never hurt me. And then we learn that he was thinking of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Yep. And he's telling stories about when he was at camp. And he says he attended Camp Wakanda. So <laughs> I was like, Wakanda? But <laughs> probably not that Wakanda. So. No, probably not. Yeah. And then the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man appears. And he's the size of Godzilla. And he's stomping down the street. Mm-hmm. And causing all kinds of destruction. So they shoot him with the proton packs and he catches fire, but it doesn't really stop him. Mm-mm. And then he's just like a flaming giant of marshmallow and he starts climbing the building like King Kong. Yeah. So Egon comes up with the plan to cross the streams, which may reverse the particle flow through the gate and send everything back where it came from. And they're like, oh, you said not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but this this may be their only option so they're basically well you know it was great working with you guys because mm, this may not end well yeah also the stay puff marshmallow man has reached the roof so he's climbed right. up like his big old hand comes like chrome as they're like running so yeah yeah so they don't really have time to worry about it so they blast the gates and then cross the streams and the gate explodes into a ball of flame And then Ash and Marshmallow rain down on the street below. Yeah, Walter Peck gets a big old sploosh on him. (laughs) Yeah, he does. And then, like, you know, the roof is really quiet for a minute. And then slowly, like, we see the Ghostbusters, like, get up. They're covered in Marshmallow and Ash, but they're all fine. And then Ray says that it smells like barbecued dog hair. And then he's like, oh, oh, Peter, I'm so sorry. I didn't think. Like, he's just, you know, commenting and not thinking. But then a hand pushes out of the crispy fried gargoyle. And so they dig Dana out. And then we see that Lewis is also fine. He has like a gargoyle head on his head. He's wandering around confused. So like Egon takes the head and off. He's like, who turned okay. out the lights? <laughs> and down on the ground, people are cheering for the Ghostbusters. And then they come out of the building and everyone cheers. And the theme song plays. And we get the big name credit roll as the Ghostbusters theme song plays. Did I say that already? I did. And then they drive off into the distance and we see Slimer appear and follow the car. Yeah. And we assume Dana and Janine are in the Ecto-1 with them because Ecto-1 has tinted windows in the back. So you can't really see who's in there because we know that Lewis wants to go with them in the car. But like they take him away separately. It's like, I want to go with them in the car. But yeah. So yeah. Poor guy. Another little mistake here. Ray mistakenly says the Tunguska event happened in 1909. It actually happened in 1908. Because he's talking to Lewis about like, hey, you survived the most, you know, event since the Tunguska event in 1909. That was actually June 30th, 1908. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sorry. Even on this, I have to do the correction. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people get stuff wrong. It happens. (laughs) 
do it because I love it. Yep, but that's Ghostbusters. That's Yay. Ghostbusters. Really good, I have to say. I mean, it's 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 probably of its time, but the music in this movie is really good. Yeah, I mean, the whole movie is definitely of its time, but it holds up really well, too. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. I feel like I can still watch it and really enjoy it and not have big problems with it. And it doesn't, the effects don't look amazing, but they're not, they're not like, the they're worst. not bad. The effect, the effects that don't look great are the digital effects, which makes sense because it's 1984. Like, all the compositing looks pretty good. Like, the animatronic stuff, well, maybe not animatronic, but you know what I mean? Like, stop, like, stop motion stuff looks good. So it's pretty much the digital stuff that is kind of. Mm, yeah, it's aged a little bit, but yeah. it's still fine. Speaking of things aging, I forgot how much smoking was in this movie. Like Ray constantly has a cigarette in his mouth. And like we said, Winston and Bankman also smoke. So, I mean, don't don't smoke. It does look kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but don't smoke. It's bad. It's funny, though, because when Ray, because because Ray is almost always smoking. And when he first seems Slimer, he's like. Peter, Peter, and it, it's like stuck on his lip and it's just kind of hanging uh-huh. there for a while before it falls down. And it's great because you know that wasn't planned. It was just like he had it in his mouth, but when he opened it, it kind of like just stuck there from saliva. But it's mm-hmm. one of those things that it's just great because it just kind of dangles there for a while before it finally falls down. It's pretty funny. So. Yeah. And then there's definitely scenes in here you know, like you're, you can just basically pick them out, like, okay, yeah, Bill Murray just improvised that part right there, and he improvised mm-hmm. that part, like when he breaks into his lounge singer act in the in the in the jail, and then the little I'm I'm willing to bet the little spinny thing too after he meets Dana outside the concert hall, he probably yeah that too because the one guy was doing it, so yeah, there's just a lot of little bits that you know he probably improved, so. Mm-hmm. Winston also makes a comment that he's making about eleven five a year, which I checked is about thirty two thousand dollars a year in today's money. So still not great, yeah. but I guess they don't have a ton of money to hire Ghostbusters. No, he's, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because obviously Ray, Egon, and Peter are living there now. Like, right. I don't know if Winston is though, but if he is, then he's not paying rent. So that yeah, sense, especially in New York, I imagine. So. Yeah, I'm sure that makes a difference. I know in the cartoon they all live there, so I'm just yeah. going to assume that's the case. Yeah. So, hey, you get a job and you get a place to live at the same time. So, mm-hmm. you know, not too bad. Plus, it's a pretty sweet job. Well, I mean, depending. You know, it seems like it's... No. Like, when they get busy, it seems like it's a lot of work and they're not, you know... I mean, everything is a lot of smelly, work. apparently. But if you're so. passionate about hunting ghosts, then <laughs> it's my dream job. I always wanted to be a Ghostbuster. Seems like it pays pretty well. I don't know what the total overhead cost is. I imagine their electric bill is pretty high. Yeah. Around the grid. Yeah. So, and then I don't know, like, what it takes to charge a proton pack. So, um, or if it even needs to be charged. Almost part of me thinks it would need to be charged, and that's just. Yeah, they. I think they do charge them. Yeah. Well, maybe not. I think in the second movie they talk about that a little it's bit. It's a nuclear accelerator, so yeah. Yeah, so I think in the second movie they mentioned maybe that it Second movie? They had to... A second movie? <laughs> what? There's a second Ghostbusters? I, I remember in the cartoon them having to charge the proton packs, but that was probably just for the sake of cartoon. There's a cartoon? <laughs> what? Yes, there is. Whoa. Wow. You know what there else there several. is? There was another Bill Murray movie in 1984, and it's a movie that is near and dear to my heart almost as much as Ghostbusters. And it is called The Razor's Edge. And it also starred Catherine Hicks, who 
I hated for so long because of her role in that movie. Um, Catherine Hicks, if you're not sure, if you don't know who she is, she also starred in Seventh Heaven, that TV show, which also starred Jessica Biel, who would then go on to play a character in Blade Trinity. So a little vampire connection there for you. But yeah. Nice. I love that movie. It's based on the book by W. Somerset Maughan. There's another movie of it as well, starring Tyrone Power and Gene Turney, two of the most beautiful people to ever be on screen, honestly. Like, oh my God. Like, I don't care if you're straight or whatever your sexual preference is, you see Tyrone Power and Gene Turney and you want to be with both of them. It's just, they are both gorgeous, in my opinion. So, yes. Anyway. And there would possibly be no Ghostbusters as we know it without the Razor's Edge, or at least no Razor's Edge, which almost no one knows about, without Ghostbusters. Because Bill Murray's wife received the screenplay from the director and he was because oh. I guess she was involved in that kind of stuff and then apparently Bill Murray saw it and Bill Murray called the director and when the director answered Bill Murray said hello this is Larry Daryl who's the name of the character in the movie and the book he wanted to play it he wanted to do dramatic roles no one wanted him to do it because Bill mm. Murray, comedian, even at that time, Bill Murray, comedian, right? Even though it's still like early 80s, Bill Murray, comedian. No one would want him to do it. So after going back and forth about who could do it, Dan Aykroyd told Columbia that if they would fund the Razor's Edge for Bill Murray, Bill Murray would be in Ghostbusters. Which was Nice. So they agreed because originally Bill Murray wasn't supposed to be in Ghostbusters. And we can get into that in a little bit. But so they agreed. And some of that may have already been like they were already planning to do that. And maybe that was just a thing of like it wasn't aware. And so they kind of used that. But so Columbia agreed to fund it. And so they actually filmed a bunch in Europe. They actually filmed a lot on location for the Razor's Edge. And so Bill Murray did all that shooting for the Razor's Edge. And then the day after filming wrapped on the Razor's Edge, he flew to New York and they started shooting Ghostbusters. So, yep. Tyrone Power also starred in one of my other very, very, very favorite movies, The Mark of Zorro. And we have a Batman connection because Batman's parents were apparently killed after they went to go see The Mark of Zorro, right? Uh Because Bruce Wayne loved Zorro. And Bill Murray was going to play Batman at one point. Oh, nice. I think I remember that. After Stripes, Ivan Reichman was going. Maybe not. Maybe I was too young. To make a Batman movie, and Bill Murray was going to play the lead, or Eddie Murphy was going to play the lead. Oh, that would have been cool. But neither of them wanted to be Robin, so it wasn't sure who was going to be Batman, who was going to be Robin. Neither one of them wanted to be Robin, and then the movie just never happened. But yeah, we could have had a Bill Murray as Batman, or strangely, a Bill Murray as Robin. But Bill Murray was like, "No, I'm not being Robin. I'm like too old to wear that costume." But it was going to be a comedy, right? It was going to be more like in the Mm -hmm. Adam West style. But yeah. Totally. Bill Murray was almost Batman after Stripes. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, as if you haven't heard enough of Nick talking, let's talk about Dr. Ray Stance, the heart of the Ghostbusters, aka Dan Aykroyd. So mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd co wrote this with Harold Ramis. The original script was a little different. It had multiple dimensions. I actually heard one person describe it as it was like a cartoon, which kind of matches the way the real Ghostbusters cartoon goes Mm -hmm. a little bit. 
but it had multiple dimensions. There were multiple teams of Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters had already existed for years. The movie was set in 2012, the future. Oh, interesting. That would have been cool. It was kind of a more darker, less comedy movie as well. Um, But Jim Belushi was going to be in it. Yes. But then he died. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, so it got changed a lot. Ivan Reitman helped to rewrite a lot of it. And they brought Harold Ramis in to basically write the movie that we see. So, yep. Because Dan Aykroyd is super into spiritualism. And there's a reason for that. And I Mm -hmm. have a small... A small amount of notes that we may have discussed earlier about that. <laughs> Nick has a small essay about Dan Aykroyd. Yes, I do. So if you will, if you will, if you will grant me some time, let me tell you about <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. All right, I'm in. So Dan Aykroyd is almost a poster child for Canada. He was born on Canada Day, which is July 1st in 1952, at the Ottawa Hospital in Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital of Canada. So mm-hmm. his father samuel cuthbert peter hugh Aykroyd. that's a name that is a name wow that is five names for one person it's a lot of names yeah he was born 1922 died in 2020 anyway his father was a civil engineer who worked as the policy advisor to canadian prime minister pierre trudeau who is father of current prime minister justin trudeau neither of which are related to cartoonist gary trudeau by the way so his mother was Lorraine Helene Marie. Her maiden name was Guillaume. She was born in 1918, and she sadly died just before her 100th birthday in 2018. She was a secretary, and she was a French-Canadian descent, which explains all the, the Frenchie in her name. So, Dan Aykroyd's first professional experience was when he was 17. The short-lived Canadian sketch comedy series called Heart and Lorne's Terrific Hour, which... Lorne Michaels was part of. That name might sound familiar to people who know about Saturday Night mm-hmm. Live. He was also a member of the Second City Comedy Troupe in 1973, the SCTV that we talk about a lot about, both in Toronto and Chicago. His younger brother, okay. Peter, was also an actor. And along with his brother, he was in the Second City Comedy Troupe in Toronto, and they both were on Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. So I'm going to do a little aside on Peter Aykroyd just for a moment. So he was a cast member and writer on Saturday Night Live from 1979 to 1980, during the fifth season. He appeared in films Spies Like Us, Dragnet, Nothing But Trouble, and Coneheads, which, if you know anything about those titles, you realize that his career was very much tied to his brother's career, Dan Aykroyd. Mm -hmm. In 1996, Peter Aykroyd co-created the Canadian sci-fi show Sci Factor with Christopher Chacon and Peter Ventrella, and the show was hosted by his brother Dan and produced 88 episodes. And it was kind of like unsolved mysteries, but for paranormal stuff, sort of. Oh, cool. Real stories and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. in, well, supposedly real stories. We'll get to that in a little yes. bit. In 1997, Peter Aykroyd and Jim Belushi provided the voices of Elwood Blues and Jake Blues for the cartoon version of the Blues Brothers, the animated series, playing roles made famous by their respected brothers, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. So, nice. little brother action. Peter Aykroyd died in Spokane, Washington on November 6, 2021, at the age of 65. Two weeks before his 66th birthday, he died from sepsis called by an untreated abdominal hernia. His death was first announced two weeks later through a title card on Saturday Night Live. And when I read this, it got personal for me. And I felt that I wanted to give Peter some time 
because I also currently have untreated abdominal hernias. Um, that I was starting to get treatment for when COVID happened, and then I have not been able to get treatment for them, and they have gotten worse. Um, thankfully, I've had no issues with them, but when I read that, it just kind of because that is something I have to be aware of and have anxiety about sometimes that something could go wrong with my intestines and I could be in deep trouble. Yeah. So, Ooh. yeah. Yes. So that kind of, when I read that, I was kind of like, oh, shit. So I wanted to give, <laughs> I mean, it's tragic when someone dies from something like oh, that. Oh, for sure. Time. Yeah. So I wanted to give him some time. So, so back to Dan Aykroyd. I'm not going to try to encompass Dan Aykroyd's career. He has a filmography. You can find it easily. You probably know a lot of it. Y'all probably have maybe a favorite film, whether it be like Trading Places or Ghostbusters or, you know, not really a huge Dan Aykroyd fan, honestly, to tell you the truth. Not that I don't like him, but I've just never really been into him. Guess what? I'm a Bill Murray guy. So Dan Aykroyd actually participated in the recording of We Are the World in 1985 as a member of the chorus. Uh, after learning that, I actually think I remember seeing him in the video. So in 1992, he and Hard Rock Cafe co-founder Isaac Tigert, I think is how you say his name. I apologize if I'm saying it incorrectly, founded the House of Blues, a chain of music venues with the mission to promote African-American culture contributions of blues, music and folk art. It began as a single location in Cambridge, Massachusetts, although other locations quickly followed, starting with a venue in New Orleans in 1994. In 2004, the House of Blues became the second largest live music promoter in the world with seven venues and 22 amphitheaters in the United States and Canada. Wow. It was bought by Live Nation in 2006. Boo. <laughs> so, yeah, Dan Aykroyd has always been like he's the one who introduced Jim Belushi to blues music. So nice. and then they went on to do the Blues Brothers. Because apparently Jim Belushi was more into hard rock. So in 2007, Aykroyd and artist John Alexander founded Crystal Head Vodka, a brand of high-end vodka known for its distinctive skull-shaped bottle and for mm -hmm. being filtered through Herkimer Diamond Crystals. Ooh. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. And now you're saying, Nick, you were talking about paranormal stuff with Dan Aykroyd. I have heard almost no paranormal stuff about Dan Aykroyd. Now, when we get into that, Dan Aykroyd's great-grandfather, Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, came to his interest in spiritualism in an unexpected way through dentistry. Huh. He received his degree of Doctor of Dental Surgery in the 1890s, a time when there were few methods to control for pain during surgery. One of those methods was hypnotism. And that apparently sparked an interest in the relatively new phenomenon called spiritualism, which had begun in 1848 with the Fox sisters. If you are into spiritualism, you know that already. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having correspondence with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, nice. Samuel kept journals detailing his explorations with ghosts from 1905 to 1933, recording the events of about 80 seances as a member of the Lily Dale Society in, ooh, I cannot say this name, Chachuqua, New York, which describes itself as a member organization and residential community comprised of persons who practice the faith of spiritualism. In his journals, he expressed some dissatisfaction with what was produced during seances because it was always, you know, like you might get some ectoplasm, you might get some spirit trumpets, you might get some cold hands touching you, but it was never really like tangible didn't stick around right it would disappear lights came mm -hmm. on was all gone 
So to this end, he held seances on a regular schedule with the same people, like science. And through the seances, the spirits were like, hey, Samuel, we're really trying. Be patient. So they knew what was going on, but they were just having trouble doing it. So okay, patience was one thing. Human frailty is another. Because Samuel joined the spirits, we assume, in 1933 when he died. But his family carried on his life work. After his father's death, Maurice Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's grandfather, tried to build a device that was capable of capturing ghosts' voices. Whoa, so, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, apparently he didn't know you could just record them with a tape recorder <laughs> like, like Hans Holzner did, which we never got to listen to that tape. He said he had the tape of the ghost, and I realized he never played it for us on that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Mm. <laughs> anyway... Maurice was aided by his own son, Peter, who is Dan Aykroyd's dad, in building this device. And he had actually attended some of Samuel's seances when he was very young. They worked on this device together until the ghosts were like, you know what? It just isn't possible. You can't record our voices. Sorry. So they stopped working on it. So okay. That was nice of them to let them know they were wasting their time. That was cool. Yeah, Although absolutely. that makes me think about what happened with Hans Holzner, because if you can't record ghost voices, what does he have? <laughs> I don't know. Were the ghosts Look, we're lying? getting conflicting information from the spirit world, okay? We are. Sometimes we it are. just doesn't. Yeah. Connect. Maybe they realized Maurice and Peter just weren't good at, like, making devices, and we're like, guys, stop. It's fine. You yeah, they're like, record. you're they just wasting your time. Yeah. yeah. Can't record us. Sorry. Yeah, they just weren't good at it. Didn't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah, so, yeah. However, this did not squelch Peter's interest in the subject matter, especially after he inherited his grandfather's journals and a massive library of spiritual literature. So, as Dan Aykroyd says, most places in Canada, you'd see Look Magazine or National Geographic or Life Magazine all stacked up. In my house, it was the American Society for Cyclical Research, Fate Magazine, British Society for Cyclical Research, all these publications that studied the paranormal. So I just grew up with it. There was no way out of it. So huh. it was around when he grew up. So raised in such a household, Ackroyd found himself years later perusing the pages of the American Society for Cyclical Research journals that he had grown up reading. Fascinated by quantum physics and comparative psychology, Ackroyd envisioned a concept where parapsychological vernacular was combined with harnessing subatomic power to trap ghoulish entities. Oh. intertwining the sciences of how apparitions might manifest in the real world. The screenplay for Ghostbusters introduced a predominantly unbeknownst element called ectoplasm, which actually had been of particular interest to his great-grandfather Samuel. That was what the one thing that Samuel was really wanting to like, just mm -hmm. like, I want some ectoplasm, like some ectoplasm that I will stick around that I can keep. Because so, it's like solid evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Because apparently ectoplasm was discovered in 1894 by French physiologist Charles Richet. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be Richet or Richet. It's French, so I don't know. There's a T on the end. Anyway, Dan Aykroyd integrated the tangible science of ectoplasm into Ghostbusters. And with the help of Dr. Peter Venkman's iconic line, he slimed me. Ectoplasm is now a term known around the world. Mm -hmm. So even though ectoplasm, as we know, it is actually different from the ectoplasm that existed in the spiritualist movement. Totally. So, that would make yeah. sense. Then it was basically cheesecloth that they would cover in gunk and vomit up. Kind of cool. It's fake. Anyway, in 2009, Peter Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's dad, not his brother, 
and Angela Narth, along with Peter Sons, Dan and Peter, which is a really confusing sentence because they're both named Peter. You all need to skip generations when you're naming each other after yourselves. So it's really confusing. Anyway, they published the book Ghosts, the True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters, a compilation of Samuel Augustus journals, which provides an overview of the late 19th and early 20th century attempts to understand the spiritual realm, including mediums spewing ectoplasm and seance trumpets. So I should note that Peter Aykroyd, who passed in 2020, is neither Peter Aykroyd, the English biographer, novelist, and critic, nor Peter Aykroyd, the British biblical scholar, Anglican priest, and former congregational minister. I highlight this because, one, I had always assumed they were the same person, and I thought Dan Aykroyd's father was like this famous scholar, which when Ghost came out was like, whoa, this famous scholar is writing this book about ghosts, and he's Dan Aykroyd's father. That's amazing. And two, I now realize that I'd be spelling Dan Aykroyd's last name wrong basically since forever because... Yeah, it does not... It is not spelled how you would think. No. Dan Aykroyd spells it A-Y-K-R-O-Y-D. And the other two, Peter Aykroyd, spell it A-C-K-R-O-Y-D, which is how I'd always spelled it. And then realized I was spelling Dan Aykroyd's name completely wrong. So, lifetime learner. (laughs) Other than spiritualism, in case Crystal Skull Vodka wasn't a clue, Dan Aykroyd is also interested in various other aspects of the paranormal, including ufology. He is a lifetime member of and official Hollywood consultants for the Mutual UFO Network. So move on. Mm-hmm. In 1997, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry awarded Aykroyd in absentia the Snuffed Candle Award for hosting Sci Factor and being a, quote, lifelong promoter of paranormal claims. Following the awards, Joe Nickel, who we've talked about previously, wrote to Aykroyd asking for research behind the cases presented on SciFactor, which again ran for 88 episodes over four seasons from 1996 to 2000. He was particularly interested in a case that claimed that NASA scientists were killed while investigating a meteor crash and giant eggs were found. And when they were incubated, yielded a flea the size of a hog. Okay, wait, wait, there's, I have a lot of questions. There's a lot to unpack there. So NASA scientists were investigating a meteorite, were killed, Mm -hmm. But who got the eggs? Where did the eggs go? I don't know. I don't know if they were killed because the eggs hatched and giant fleas attacked them or if they found the eggs and incubated them and then were killed or I don't know. Uh I haven't seen that episode of Side Factor. That is extremely fascinating. I mean, that's one hell of a story. It's not a story I've ever heard before. So no. Nice. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is so four generations of Aykroyd's. Yeah. Spiritualism. That's super fascinating. That makes sense, though, because I've always heard he was a spiritualist. So it's kind of nice to get some insight into how that played out in his life and how that has affected him as a person. Yep. So thank cool. you for granting me the time, assuming you need to skip forward. <laughs> and now on to other I want to rewatch related news. In The Real Ghostbusters, a cartoon that Tori and I have both mentioned, and I know Tori can talk a little bit more about, mm-hmm. Dr. Ray Stance was voiced by someone we have talked about before on some of our other X-Files adjacent episodes. He was voiced by Frank Welker. Nice. Who also voiced Slimer, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, Mayor Lenny Klotch, Manx, 
Scareface, and I'm going to guess he probably voiced a lot of other like one-off and background characters as well. Oh, so probably. Yeah. yeah. As you may know, Frank Welker has been the only person ever to voice Fred Jones, with the exception of a pup named Scooby-Doo and the live-action versions. Mm-hmm. And he's also the voice of Megatron, Soundwave, Ravage, and Rumble on the Transformers, among basically 5,384,000 other voices. Yeah, I feel like if there's animation. a cartoon, there's a good chance he has a voice somewhere in there. Yeah, like... He's also currently the voice of Scooby-Doo, so because yeah. the original Scooby-Doo voice actor passed away and Frank Welker took over. Mm-hmm. So, if you listen to our Supernatural episode, you heard all about that, as well as our Scooby-Doo episodes. So Yes. Boom. Yeah. So, like I said, I was two when this movie came out, so obviously I did not see it in theaters. But my brother and I did watch the real Ghostbusters cartoon when it came out. It was on, you know, Saturday mornings. This is when I became obsessed with Ghostbusters. I had the toys. (laughs) I loved the cartoon so much. And my mom would not let us watch the movie until we were like, I think I was eight or nine. And so Andrew would have been. Your mom probably saw that scene where Ray has the dream. I was like, my kids are not watching this. Well, and I think she was, I think she knew that would go over our heads. I think it was more that she was worried it would scare us and we would have nightmares because we were little kids. Oh. And we were like, we also, one time we were driving to Lake Almanor and we stopped at a gas station where they had the Ecto-1 because like the production people were like driving it down. Mm-hmm. So we got to like get out and like touch the car. <laughs> and the fact that like I had seen the Ecto-1 when I was a little kid, I was like completely convinced that the Ghostbusters were real. Did because... you have to get to touch it? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so like i knew the cartoon wasn't real because i you know even as a kid i understood the cartoons were not real but like i thought that they, it was based on real people and so i i thought ghostbuster was a viable career choice and that was exactly what i wanted to be when i grew up until i was like i mean even now i would be a ghostbuster so i don't think that ever really went i mean away. from what i understand you received the ghostbuster employee kit Right? I did. You're a Ghostbuster now. Yeah, I do. I have it on my shelf. So I am. I am an honorary Ghostbuster. But yeah, no, I loved the cartoon and it it just was such a big part of my life. And then getting to see the movie was super great. I mean, I don't think it I think the cartoon actually had some pretty scary stuff. (laughs) It's hard to be a parent and judge what's gonna freak your kids out, I think. So but yeah, Ghostbusters has always been a big part of my life. I, I love it and I think the movie's amazing. I really do. Yep. The big difference, I think, between the movie and the cartoon, aside from like I mentioned earlier, I think the cartoon actually maybe goes a little bit more into like maybe like the original script where that was intended or not, like because the different dimensions and, you know, the, the, the ghosts they're fighting and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. is that for some reason, Egon has like white or super blonde hair in the cartoon. He and does, and it's like it's got this little swirl on top. Got that a, like... He's got a big old yeah pompadour. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but like, I think that was the most jarring thing for me when I saw the movie is how different he got. <laughs> yeah. You're like, wait, okay, but then you, you're a kid, so you just brush it off. You're like, it's fine. It's the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. I watched the cartoon too. So yeah. Yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah. A lot of hours playing Ghostbusters as a kid too. Like that was just uh, my life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I played I mean Ghostbusters came out when I was fourteen. 
So <laughs> I probably wasn't running around playing Ghostbusters. No, yeah. probably not. <laughs> yeah. I think I did have some of the real Ghostbusters toys, though, because I was a toy collector in my. Yeah, I definitely stuff, had so. some of the action I figures. Am, I think there was so. one that, like, I think some of them would, like, turn into ghosts. Like, there was some guy that you could, like, Yeah, they had the scare like, ones where you, like, push their back and they, like, they would kind of, like, flip or pop over. Yeah, or they would, like, flip or around. Or their faces and, would, like, like, they'd be like, ah, and, like, their eyes would bug out and their mouth would drop. Mm-hmm. But they were scared. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then I have a little section that I re- realized I originally called Nick's Rabbit Hole Corner, but it's not anywhere near as long as my whole Dan Aykroyd deep dive. So whatever. But while I was looking up all the Dan Aykroyd stuff, I came across a 2006 book written by Deborah Bloom called Ghost Hunters, which caught my attention because, Tori, you and I know Deborah Bloom as a writer and producer on In Search Of. Mm-hmm. And then you had previously mentioned the whole copyright thing with putting an S on the end of Hunter. Yeah, when I was a journalist, I interviewed this ghost hunter from Canada who had like his own ghost hunting show. And they they had to call it Ghost Hunters. And I I think their show actually started before the American like Ghost Hunters or whatever. But I think like they the other the American show was trying to like bully them into like changing the last letter anyway yeah it was a long time ago yeah, i think we talked about this because hans holzer's book is entitled ghost hunter yes and you had mentioned like oh yeah but you put an s on that they're gonna sue the shit out of you because yeah they copyrighted that so this caught my attention because i'm one deborah bloom in search of and mm-hmm. then two like this book is 2006 and it says ghost hunters so right like, so that seems like that would interfere is with it related the trademark? to both <laughs> yeah i was really like whoa what's going on so it turns out, I don't know about, the, I didn't go into the whole copyright thing with the Ghost Hunters show, but it does seem, and this gets really weird, that this is a different Deborah Bloom. Oh, okay. Or she is incredibly good at keeping her two lives separate on the internet. I, I would say she's probably a different person. <laughs> I would say so too, but let's look at the evidence here. So, In Search of Deborah Bloom has writing credits for In Search of, The Bionic Woman, a 1988 film called Vibes that starred Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum and Ancient Aliens from 2010 to 2014. Hmm. And she has producer credits on In Search Of, obviously, 1977. The movie Gung Ho with Michael Keaton from 1986. The movie Vibes, I already mentioned 1988. Clean and Sober, also 1988. Also starring Michael Keaton. Which hmm. I'm thinking, hmm. Also, Mysteries of the Bible, which was an A&E series in 1994, which was narrated by Richard Kiley and Gene Simmons. And not that Gene Simmons. This is G-E-A-N Simmons. I watch that show all the time. Love that show. Oh, my God. Okay. Mysteries of the Bible. Loved it. Also, Biography from 1996 to 1997. We've talked about Biography because it turns out that Alan Landsberg like, helped to start that show at some point back in the 60s before A&E bought it and revamped it in the 1990s. Modern Marvels, which I know was an A&E or Discovery Channel show in 1999. Secrets of the Bible in 2005. And Mega Disasters in 2007. So so she's still doing stuff. Ghost Hunters' Deborah Bloom, who was born in 1954, so would be the right age to possibly be our In Search of Deborah Bloom. Because then she would have been like 23 when In Search Of happened, and since In Search Of is kind of like a little, you know, by the bootstraps kind of operation, we're thinking there probably were a lot of younger people working on it. Anyway, Uh she is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and some of her other books include 
Sex on the Brain, The Biological Differences Between Men and Women, 1997. The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age, New York, 2010. Angel Killer, A True Story of Cannibalism, Crime Fighting, and Insanity in New York City, from 2012. And The Poison Squad, One Chemist Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century, 2018. And then to keep the theme... The full title of Ghost Hunters is Ghost Hunters William James in the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death. So she yes. likes long titles. Yes. So, yeah. Well, nonfiction does tend to have longer titles. So. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure my wife has read at least The Poisoner's Handbook. And I'm pretty sure she read The Poison Squad. I was going to read that, too. I did not realize that was the same person. I think I knew about those books, but wasn't aware of the author's name. Mm-hmm. And so otherwise, I would have been like, Deborah Bloom. She also started her career in newspapers, writing for several, including the Fresno Bee. Nice. Where she was the first to report on the startling incident of severely deformed waterfowl at the Kesterston National Wildlife Refuge, where poor management of the irrigation runoff had polluted the wetland with toxic levels of selenium. Her work on the Fresno Bee put the paper far ahead of other rivals, including the San Francisco Chronicle and the Los Angeles Times in covering the story so nice there are connections everywhere so Mm -hmm. but i can't only assume that these are different people even though they seem to exist parallel in time and space and to some extent content so it's really weird they even spell their names exactly the same yeah i mean it happens it's not the most uncommon name it is weird Mm -hmm. and then also you should check out jamie loftus's nine episode podcast series ghost church it includes a reenactment of the relationship between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini by Paul F. Tompkins and Robert Evans. Nice. So, if nothing else, that's episode eight, but the whole the whole thing is talking about the spiritualism movement. So, okay. and actually, Dan Aykroyd actually comes up in this podcast as well. Oh, example. nice. So, cool. Yeah, talking about talking about his family history of spiritualism. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we thought we were going to talk a lot about Ghostbusters, and we did, but we also talked a lot about not Ghostbusters. <laughs> Well, you talked a lot about I talked a lot. People would be like, Nick, shut up. <laughs> uh, Although the, you know, the Dan Aykroyd spiritualism stuff is related for sure. Because it yeah. helped inspire the movie, obviously. I get in those rabbit holes, man. Like I said, I got that red yarn. It's everywhere. <laughs> it is everywhere. So, assuming you're still listening because you're like, God damn it, Nick is still talking. <laughs> I skipped ahead 20 minutes and he's still talking. Okay. Yeah, Ghostbusters, man. It's a, mm-hmm. yep, it's in there. It's, it's just one of those things that never leaves your brain, no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I still have lines from it in my head all the time. And like the ones like <laughs> just Peter saying, get her. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. like mocking uh, Ray's little plan or just the whole like back off, man. I'm a scientist. Like that stuff's always in my brain. Yeah. So, chick is toast. No one stepped on a church in my town. Just, yeah. Uh, dogs and cats living together mass hysteria just yeah just all these little bits always yeah. are just in your head you can't make them leave it's true so. strangely i mean we knew we were doing this and that may be why but like we've been maybe sort of intentionally but also a lot of unintentionally just like ghostbuster shit has been coming up in our in search of episodes a lot yeah, well, <laughs> there was one about ghosts and there was one about ghosts i mean it is something so. that does you know, the Zenner cards, obviously. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. it came up in the Loch Ness Monster one, too. So, oh, yeah. 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 But yep. 
Ghostbusters. Yep. I think you and I, if we weren't, I mean, sometimes we're, we try not to be aware that we're recording a podcast, but I do think if you and I were just talking about Ghostbusters, we would be talking a lot and for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, it's just, (laughs) I think we could probably go on about it for a really long time. It's just such a fun movie and it's just, I love the concept. Like the idea of containing ghosts is so fascinating and like the fact that they build this ghost trap and like i don't know the whole thing like i just honestly dream job if i could wear a proton pack and run around and shoot ghosts and put them in a little containment thing i think that'd be amazing but also like then you can get into like the whole ethics of like keeping ghosts contained and how that works and like you could definitely spin off into a lot of different questions well, it also gets into the thing, and I think you and I talked about this a little bit at one point. I don't remember when, but how it is strange how if ghosts are supposed to be dead people, right? Why, when you come back from being dead, are you usually a pain in the ass? Like, <laughs> even if you weren't originally, right? You know, it seems like ghosts are almost always portrayed as causing trouble. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some people do cause trouble, right? But it seems like something about the process of dying and coming back really irritates you. And so you're mean and hateful a lot. Well, there's there's a lot of stuff. Like, there are different angles on that, too. Like, are you a pain in the ass because you're confused and you don't know what's going on? So, like, are you walking through walls and knocking stuff over because it wasn't there in your they time? don't you know seeing, they're dead. Yeah, are you seeing the home the way it used to be? Um, are you a pain in the ass because you start to, the longer you're a ghost, does your memory degrade? Do you become something else? Is that, like, you know, so that, there's just a lot of different, like, ways that I could see ghosts. Or are you just reliving your trauma? Yeah, you're just relieving, or are you just bored? Like the ghosts on the show, ghosts. <laughs> they're just bored. They're hanging out. They got nothing to do. Of course, you're going to be a little bit of a pain in the ass if you can, because what else are you going to do? <laughs> that show, I realized when you were talking about it, it also, because you had mentioned that one of the ghosts who can touch stuff. Yeah, there's like one in each out. series. Yeah. Yeah, and so like all the ghosts don't have this they're not all on the same yeah. No, they don't have the no. same power and like it's interesting yeah. cuz there's this lore in the show that if you that occasionally, very rarely a ghost will get sucked into the afterlife. Like something will have they call it getting sucked off and the joke is the ghosts don't understand what that sounds like except one of them who's like let me have this they don't know what it sounds like but um so but they're you know they can ascend to whatever and then in the american show they even introduce a thing where one ghost gets sucked downwards um and so like the ghost lore kind (laughs) of the husband guy who can't see ghosts is like oh wow the lore is expanding or something it was really funny but yeah there's just different like ghost lore so like in that show they all have different powers like some of them can like like in the british show the woman who is burned alive is a witch if she walks through someone they smell burning uh in the american one it's the soldier who died of dysentery if they walk 
if he walks mm. through someone, it smells like shit. So <laughs> they just all have different little ghost powers. And each show has the ghost who doesn't wear pants because they died without pants on and they can touch things. But like, it's really hard. Like it takes a lot of effort for them to like move something. They don't have pants and it's really hard. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't know what they're touching stuff with. So That's cool. a, right. their fingers usually. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I think ghost lore is really fascinating. You could do a lot of stuff with it, like in a fiction perspective, story wise, but also just thinking about like if ghosts really exist, what is that actually like? And like, is the reason we see ghosts as being pains in the ass because they're bored and want attention? Is it because they're losing their minds being around for so long? Or is it something else? Are they just reliving their trauma and they don't even realize they're affecting the world around them? I mean, that's what Holzer would say, right? Yeah. I don't know about Holter, though. <laughs> I know. The more I think about that episode, the more I'm just like, there was so much stuff that we did not talk about that is just wrong with those stories that I'm like, <laughs> I just, it could go on forever. So, yeah. Goes through weird. Yeah. But it makes for a good movie. And I also want to say, just watching this again, like with more of like a, not not necessarily i mean i watched it for enjoyment but also like just kind of paying a little more attention to stuff because i knew we were going to be talking about it and so looking for things to talk about that kind of thing like me finding like you know continuity error here and like oh he said 1909 instead of 1908 but also just watching it and being like this is a really well made movie as well like just details and like set dressing like there's one with during the just during like the montage when like the Ghostbusters are becoming famous and there's like some guy doing like a man on the street interview about like ghosts and all that kind of stuff. And they have someone in the background who is like, oh, oh, I'm on camera and is kind of like looking at the camera <laughs> and primping himself. And I'm like, just those kind of like little details yeah. that you just add in is like amazing. I was wondering if that was a real person. Just like if they were like, what it, are you filming? It possibly might have. And so they just <laughs> left it in, right? Because it looks yeah. like they're filming like a newscast. You wouldn't know necessarily, right? They maybe so, like yeah. chased him down and made him sign a waiver. I know when they were filming Star Trek Four, The Voyage Home, and they did the thing with Uhura and uh, Chekhov on the street asking people where they could find nuclear vessels. Like that was all improv. And when people answered, like the woman who finally speaks in that movie, they had to like chase her down. Like she was giving them real directions <laughs> and they had to like, get her to like sign a waiver because she didn't realize that she was on a movie and so i wonder if maybe that guy was like he did that They're like that's funny go get that guy <laughs> yeah <just laughs> sign like, this paper or just, we'll just afterwards someone like grabbed him so like oh we might use that right we should do that so yeah mm -hmm. but it's like i like you don't know like was that was that actually them like was that <laughs> planned or was that something that just happened yeah and it's just like lots of and then like the scenes like towards the end when there's like chaos and there's all the cars in the street and people are like jumping up and running over cars and jumping over taxis. It's just like, it's just really well done. It's just yeah. really well. Like we talk about the special effects a little bit like the digital effects, but like overall, it's just a really well done movie. And yeah. Just, and the script is great. That. Like it's very solid. Like everything is foreshadowed appropriately. Like Egon starts to mention like how, Oh, you know, maybe we could use this to come up with a way to contain ghosts. And then lo and behold, they have a way to contain ghosts. Like it's just, everything is very solidly yeah. scripted too. It works really well. And it's hilarious. And like, yeah. And like the ghost trap, when we first see the ghost trap, when they like catch the ghost and they're looking at it already, you can see like, Oh, there's stuff on the outside, like you can tell this like gets inserted into something because there's like 
grooves and like little connector points where you're like, this is going to be connecting to something at some point. And then they get to the grid and it's like you slide it in and then like close the grid. And so it like, you know, empties it and you can pull it back out and reuse it. And it's just like, just a, just a bunch of like, they could just been a box with, with opening. Right. But it, like, it had all that detail stuff in there and it was just really Yeah. Good. Just really so. smartly done. Yep. I like it. Yep. I do too. We hope you liked this episode and enjoyed us talking about Ghostbusters. Yeah, probably not as much as watching Ghostbusters, because if you enjoy I mean, this episode more than watching it, I'm happy for you, but I also worry about you. So, <laughs> yeah. They're just like, uh, we want more deep dives from Nick. That's what we want. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who definitely do. Yeah, I don't think any of them listen to the podcast, but they're probably out there. They just don't know the podcast exists, unfortunately. Well, you never know. There could be some overlap. (laughs) All righty. Well, I thought you said something about there was a second movie. Yeah, you know, it turns out they did make a sequel. It took five years, came out five years later. Um, What's it called? It's called Ghostbusters 2. Oh, oh, maybe we'll watch that too. All right, I'm down. Yeah. Okay, we'll see. All right, I can fit cool. it in my busy, busy schedule. <laughs> All righty. All right. Let's get out of here. I want to rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. Probably a little Ray Parker Jr. in there, too. Hmm. Nice. This is where you can find our X-Files episodes and most of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes, which cover television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like them, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we try to figure out if if the the truth truth is still out there. No kiss. Let me tell you something. Bustin' makes me feel good. Afraid of no ghosts. Uh, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Don't get caught alone, oh no. When it comes through your door, unless you just want some more, I think you better call. Right, I'm recording. I let me in. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> All right, wait. There we go. Now you're allowed to record. I thought I was recording. No, I'm recording. I thought I saw the thing that said the host was letting me record, and I hit the button. And oh, now you're recording. Now I'm recording. What the fuck, Zoom? I don't know. Zoom smoking some crack. I don't know. The little thing popped up, and I was like, "Damn, Tori's on it." And I hit the button, <laughs> and then you're like, "I'm not that on it." fine zoom okay all right that's it
the big one, <laughs> the big GB. 